you have your Bibles, we want to turn to 2 Corinthians. We won't be in chapter 10 today as we're thinking today of getting off on the right track. This is our New Year's service 2021, getting off on the right track. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look in the first six verses today. The first six verses. And if you'll help me a little bit today, we'll, we'll get... We won't be before you too long. Now, when we think of New Year's, we think of resolutions. And we are now in this new year, and it's not a time for resolutions for the church. (laughs) You have any idea why I say that? It's not a time for resolutions for the church. Because 99.9% of the resolutions made, they go unfulfilled. Now is a time for renewed commitments for the church. Can we get an amen with that? It is a time of new, renewed commitments. We need to renew our commitment to walk in the spirit of God and not in the flesh. And with all that 2020 brought us, all the commotion, all the sickness, and with death... Presenting to us the reality of how quick our life here on this side can come to an end. We really need to renew and focus as we enter into this new year. Focus on walking as God would have us to walk in this world. We, we, don't, we don't know what attacks are coming for the church. What we know is there are attacks coming for the church. The attack for this year, for 2020, was that they wanted us to shut down. They wanted us to stop meeting. They they wanted us to stop gathering together to worship the Lord. And I'm aware we can worship God daily. We worship God on our own. We can worship God in our offices. We can worship God in our homes. We can worship him going down the road as we're traveling from one place to another. I get that. But we as a body of believers are, are instructed that we do not fail to assemble together for worship because the gifts that we have are given for the church and we can't exercise those gifts without fellowshipping with one another now I understand there are those who are somewhat fearful and and I I get that and I, I don't want to pressure anyone into feeling like they have to come to church during this time but for those of us who feel comfortable coming for those of us who feel that we've provided a place to where we're as comfortable here as going anywhere out to eat where we're as comfortable here as going anywhere to shop for any necessity that we need if we can make this place that comfortable for us that we need to those who are comfortable in coming we mask up and we we distance ourselves and we come and we continue to fellowship and worship God together here in in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, we begin to see Paul, he turns his attention to make a personal request. And what we'll find in here is he gives us instructions on how to get off on the right foot. If we look here in this passage, what we find in verses 1 through 6 is now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ. 
who in, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exhausts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience with your obedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is God's holy word. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for allowing us to come together to worship you in spirit and in truth, to come together, God, on this first Sunday of this new year. Help us to, to kick this new year off right as a body of believers. Help us to get started on the right foot for this new year and help this year to be a better year than we've ever experienced. God, we know through the power of your Holy Spirit, all things are possible. So God, obedience is not something that we can, that we can say that my flesh took over because it's possible for us to obey you fully through the power of your Holy Spirit. Now God, as you lead us through this year, help us to be what you would have us to be. And we'll praise you for what you accomplish. And speak, God. Let this be a new year. The beginning of a new year to where those who don't know you through your son, Jesus Christ. That this would be the year that they call out to you. What must I do to be saved? God, we know that if they call upon the name of the Lord, you're just and you're faithful. To forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. God, we commit this year to you. Help us, God, to honor this commitment. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians. It's a, a book that begins with Paul making a declaration of his apostleship. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you can see that where, where Paul begins his quest to defend who he is as an apostle and the authority that he's been given by God as an apostle. It appears that Paul had wrote uh, more than just two letters. We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but when we read over in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, we begin to see um, that there's more than just these two letters to this church. We understand that letter, that first letter, it was a letter that was strong. It was, it was tough. It, it really addressed sin within the church. And then we, uh, we get to this letter, and this letter is more of Paul defending himself because there are false believers who have infiltrated the church, and they were teaching that, that Paul was not truly an apostle of God, and that his behavior while writing letters versus his behavior in how he spoke to them was completely different. And, and we find in this letter that Paul goes, uh, that he's referencing here to, to help us understand that there were more than just 
two letters. If you look in chapter 7 in verse 8 in 2 Corinthians, what we find is Paul references a harsh letter that he had written to the church. He says, for even if I made you sorry in my letter, I do not regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though for a little while. And it goes a little further, a little further in verse 9, and he, he explains why he wasn't sorrowful for making them sorry. Because in verse 9 he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So here Paul is saying whatever letter he had written to them, whatever he had declared to them, it had somehow made them sorrowful. But he was glad that they, they were sorrowful because they were only sorrowful for a little while. As a matter of fact, word got back to Paul uh, Paul that they had repented and they were no longer sorrowful well once we repent we've got no reason to be sorrowful do we understand that I want you to know that once we call out to God and we seek forgiveness of our sins he washes it away and we don't have to be sorrowful any longer for the sins that we've committed now we can be humble by the fact that, that God would forgive such a wretch as I and forgive you of all the sins that you've committed. But we don't have to be sorrowful for those sins once he's forgiven them. I'm ashamed of mine. I'm ashamed of the man that I was before I gave my life to him. But I don't have to worry about those sins coming back to me. I don't have to worry about God sitting up in heaven and pointing a finger down at me. You remember when you've done this, it's been forgiven. And he'll never bring it back. To my account. What we know is. There were two of his letters. Some, uh, some writers say that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. Some say he wrote three. What we know is there's two that made the canon of scripture. And we have them as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Now, I don't know how it was laid out when Paul wrote them. I don't know if it was one big letter. I don't know if it was, if it was three or four letters within. And they just, when they counted the scriptures, they put these in two different letters. I'm not exactly sure of all that. But what I know is what we have in the canon in which we're able to read is two letters from Paul. Now, in this second letter of Paul's, We've already said that it was a defense of Paul. Paul defending who he is. But it was also a ministry handbook for the church written by Paul. And here in chapter 10 of this letter, Paul begins to personally deal primarily with those who were critical of him. He's primarily dealing with these false teachers and these followers of the false teachers. When we look in here, we find that, that they were making accusations against Paul. And Paul's focus was not to allow these false teachers and their followers to settle in the church. They needed to know Paul had every intention to come and personally confront them and, and, and help them understand that what they were teaching and what they were sharing was false. So what we find in this passage when we begin to make practical application to our lives as a church, as we're going into this new year, what we'll find is how Paul demonstrates to us the proper 
response to false accusations. When we look here in this passage, we see that Paul responds to these false accusations against him in meekness and in gentleness. In other words, he's humble and he's kind. It would be easy for him to respond in anger. It would be easy for him to desire to do so because that's exactly who we are and what we like to do. We, we may ask, well, why were they accusing him or what were they accusing him of? Well, they were accusing Paul of walking in the flesh. The Bible teaches us in this passage, basically, they were calling Paul a coward. Here we know, here they are, they're they're accusing him of walking in the flesh and we know this about Paul to be true. We know that that after Paul had 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 his experience on the Damascus road, we would find, we would be hard pressed to find anyone throughout the scriptures other than Jesus Christ who was more committed to who was more committed to the Lord. We find it here. He walked more in the spirit and he subjected his flesh. He put his flesh under subjection to the very things that he wanted to do. He did less of them than you and I would. Paul even admits how wretched he is. And he said the very things that he wants to do, those are the things he, he, do, he finds that he didn't do. And the things he found that he didn't want to do were the very things he found himself doing. But Paul, we can find in his letters and in his life that he was probably walking a more narrow road than you and I normally walk. Or any other, at least any other Christian in scripture aside from Jesus Christ. So here, the church in Corinth that Paul founded is accusing him of walking in the flesh. Basically, they're calling him a coward. They're accusing Paul of being bold with pencil and paper. But they are saying that he had no problem giving instructions as long as he was writing them. But when it comes to standing face to face with them, that he wouldn't speak up. He wouldn't be direct. Now, we can agree that this is cowardly actions that they're describing. We see that often on social media, don't we? It don't matter if it's Facebook, Instagram, whatever social media media there is. We find people can be awfully bold behind the computer. You can look on the newspaper. You can see all these responses to whatever article they've written. And people can be awfully bold behind a, behind a computer when they have a username instead of their own name. But when they get face-to-face with somebody, they want to cowardly just sugarcoat things a little bit. They don't want to stand on what they've said. Past a friend of mine, and I might be shared this with you. Through his many years in one pastorate, he got letter after letter after letter after letter to where he had a folder full of letters where a church member cowardly chewed him out, cowardly told him what they thought he was. And I say they done it cowardly because they never would sign their name to it. 
Now, I, I, I want to say this to us, and I, I just want to remind us. Now, this hasn't happened to me. Oh, I'm blessed. <laughs> you hear me? I'm blessed, but I want to encourage you that it, it had better never happen to me. I want to encourage you that because the first letter I get, the word they're wanting to chew me out because I'm a man. You can come and talk to me. I'm not afraid of another man. I'm not afraid of another woman. And I don't want anyone to be afraid of me. You can come talk to me. Because the first letter I get that's signed anonymous that's really ripped me up and down, I'm going to read it in front of everybody. You're going to know what I know. I don't have the same personality this pastor had that just kept it in a folder. Knowing who it was. I'm going to make sure that if you got an issue with me, you... My door's open. I even got a glass in there. You can see when I'm in there and when I'm not. Just come talk with me. You can rip me apart face to face. Don't do it in a letter. Don't do it cowardly. Here, this is what they're accusing Paul of, and we know better than that, don't we? If they wanted to know just how much of a coward Paul was, they could have asked Barnabas. And if they had asked Barnabas if Paul would confront anybody, Barnabas would say, oh yeah, he confronted me. We had this, this guy that went with us on a missionary trip and he abandoned us halfway through that trip. And, and when he abandoned us later, we decided we're going to go on another trip. And, and I said, Paul, let's take him back with us. And Paul stood his ground and said, he ain't going with him. If you don't believe that, in Acts 15, chapter in chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, here's the strength of Paul. Here's the courage of Paul. After, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them. John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with him with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work then the contention became so sharp that they departed from one another and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren in the grace of God there was nothing cowardly about Paul if you don't believe that there was one one apostle that we know we know he was bold. We know he spoke his mind. He even spoke so much that he stepped out of turn sometimes. And, and, he, and he spoke when he shouldn't have spoke. We know him as Peter. Uh, if you would look in some manuscripts, it would be called Cephas. What we know is this same one. Paul confronted him in Galatians 2, chapter 11. I mean, in 2, verses 11 through 13. Peter confronts Paul, uh, or Paul confronts Peter about his actions, his hypocrisy. I'm telling you, you've got to be a bold man to stand in front of Peter and call him a hypocrite. And that's exactly what Paul did. In these verses, he says, now then Peter had come to Antioch. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men 
from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite which with him. So even Barnabas was carried away with hypocrisy. Here he is. He's sharing another event that proves that Paul was anything but a coward. If you wanted to know the truth, Paul would tell you the truth. If you wanted things sugarcoated, he wasn't the man to talk to because he wasn't about sugarcoating things. He wasn't going to make sin okay with anyone. But what Paul had and what he demonstrates is exactly what we need more so in the church. He had an inner strength and he had a boldness and a confidence enough to confront sin no matter what the situation was. But it takes a spiritual boldness to confront people in meekness and in gentleness. And that's what Paul was, that's what he was demonstrating, a spiritual boldness. We as believers, we must exercise this spiritual boldness. This is seen when we confront our accusers with meekness and gentleness. Yes, Paul was going to confront his accusers, but he was determined to confront them as Christ would have confronted them. And we must follow this same example. We're quick to want to respond to false accusations with aggression. Now, I'm talking about me right now. When false accusations come at me, I want to confront them right away. I want to get right in their face and I want to say hey where did you get this from because I need to nip this in the bud I'll come across as being extremely aggressive but that's not what Paul wanted to do here you know we don't mind an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth but anyone who responds like that that's how well anyone can respond like that because that's how the world responds that's how we respond when we're walking in the flesh but if we're going to be a body of believers who properly responds to false accusations we must understand that we don't tear down we build up to exercise the spiritual boldness we must seek repentance and restoration from the accuser We can't respond as the world does. We must respond as we're walking in the spirit of God. And how do we walk in the spirit? We walk with love. We walk with peace. We walk with joy. We show patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. We display gentleness and self-control. And that is the hardest thing for you and I to do is is demonstrate self-control. And anyone that you see in a heated and a hot time of their life that experiences self-control or demonstrates self-control, they in that time is walking by the spirit of God it's easy for me to let my temper get away from me it's hard for me to put myself in subjection to God when I'm being falsely accused but that's the proper way to respond to false accusations oh this year the church I'm not talking about Reedy Branch solely. I'm talking about the church. Oh, we've been, we were attacked this year. I don't know if you realize just how much. But we went on the defensive real quick this past year. And we tried to, we tried to defend ourselves and make excuses for ourselves and everything else. 
But you know what I've learned? I'm learning more and more through the power of the Holy Spirit now. I'm learning that I don't have to defend myself. I got a father in heaven who takes up for me. You get on the bad side of my daughter and I'll come stand in front of you. And I got a father in heaven that will stand in front of me. He'll stand in front of you. He will defend us. And if we'll we'll just stand, he'll give us what we need to respond in gentleness and meekness. Because whatever he does to them is far worse than anything you and I ever could. This is how we respond. Why? So that we keep the testimony of the church being that Christ is the light of the world. And too many people in this world looking at the church and they're turning their head or they're throwing their nose up or they're putting their head down and saying, we want nothing to do with those people. They ain't like we do. It's time for us to have a new, a renewed commitment to respond as Christ would and not as the world. Paul not only demonstrates to us the proper way to respond to false accusation, but he also demonstrates to us the reality that there is spiritual fighting. All born-again believers who are still living on this side of life, we're living in the flesh. We're housed in earthen bodies. One writer called them earthen vessels. The reality is that while we're living here in these earthly bodies, we're daily facing spiritual battles. Our warfare is not physical. It's spiritual. We like to look at others who look like us and we often think that we're at war with them because of the attack is coming from that body or through that body. But scripture teaches us in Ephesians 6 and 12 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against power, uh, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul is saying here that while we walk in the flesh, we don't walk according to the flesh because we can't fight our enemy through the flesh. The people here, when people are making false accusations towards us, we, we usually allow those accusations to rest in our minds. Where do you think the spirit deals with us most? I'm talking about the evil spirit, the accusations that come. They deal with us in our minds. You know what people say about me? It, it ain't harming me physically at all, but it gets in my mind. And that's, that's where we're at with these false accusations. When we allow them to fester, we allow ourselves to fume. We allow ourselves to, to be controlled by what's going on in our minds based upon that false accusations that's being made. We begin to doubt and we begin to worry. And those, those thoughts will wage war when we... And we'll soon become full of who we are. We remember the story of Job. I remember growing up. Reading part part of that book. And not reading all of it. Because it's just a long book. 
It's a lot to read. And once I turned nine years old, when I got out of that class, I think it was the fourth grade, I didn't ever want to pick up another book. I really didn't want to read. I loved to read up until that point. But, you know, it's like my dad ate homemade biscuits all his life growing up in grandma's house. Every meal they ate, they had homemade biscuits. When he got out on his own, he didn't want homemade biscuits. He'd rather eat canned biscuits. You can get so full of something, you don't want it no more. That happened to me in the fourth grade. I had a teacher that gave us so much homework, I never wanted to read anything else. And so here we find that if we are careful, we can allow our minds to be filled with so much stuff that we forget who we really are and whose we are. As a matter of fact, in the story of Job, what I found when I began to really read the whole story, it's very intriguing. We, we know that, that Satan approaches God and, and after roaming around seeking whom he may devour. Uh, so God declares Job to be a blameless and an upright man. And he offers Satan to test him. And Satan tells him, oh, if you'll take that hedge from around him, he'll... He'll curse you. But God, but we know how the story goes. Job loses everything. He loses his livestock, his servants, his children, his health. His wife even tells him to curse God and die. And Job's response is, you foolish woman. Naked I came into this world. Naked I shall leave this world. And blessed be the name of the Lord. He stood firm for a while. You know, Job had some friends that come by. Shortly after, and as they come by, they begin to tell Job all about Job, all about how everything that's going on in Job's life had to be because of sin in Job's life. We remember the story. Job, Job was a man who offered sacrifice for his children just in case they had sinned whenever they were partying. He, he was that much of a righteous and upright man. And now his friends are telling him just how unrighteous he is. They had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. But it stayed in Job's mind. You know, after you hear something long enough, you begin to believe it. You know, that's why every father who browbeats his child, he ought to be arrested. Every mother who tells her, her daughter that she'll never amount to anything, she ought to be arrested. Because eventually those children start to believe that. And you're not giving them a chance in this life. Instead, we ought to be encouraging and uplifting. When our children are wrong, tell them they're wrong, why they're wrong, and issue out their proper discipline that they need. But let them know that you're doing it because you love them, not because they're no good. You know, the worst thing that's ever happened to kids is when divorce happened and it, was, it ended bad between mom and dad. And when mom wants to tear dad down in front of their child. And when dad wants to trash mom in front of the child, the child has to live with that. And then they have the audacity to look at that child. You're just like your mama who you just trashed. You're just like your daddy who you've just ripped apart in front of them. It's no wonder we're filled with people today on medications they don't really need. But their self-esteem is so low. That they don't know what to do. So they have to go get help. From the world. Rather than seeking God. 
people, aren't you glad that when the world said that we were no good, <laughs> when the world said that we were, we, we were worth killing, when the world said that there was nothing good going to amount to us, God reached down and said, I love you and I'll make you mine. I'll make you an heir to my throne. That's what the world does. They tear us down, but God lifts us up. Here Job is being torn down by his friends. So much that he begins to believe it. And in chapter 7, we see Job begins to question God. He begins to complain. You know, I grew up thinking Job never questioned God. Oh, yes, he does. Read the book. Read chapter 7. As a matter of fact, chapter 7, verse 11, the Bible says, Job said, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak with anguish from my spirit. I will complain in bitterness of my soul. And you know, at first I thought he was talking to his friends. Then I went to really reading it close and I saw that you capitalized. And every time Job was addressing somebody, he was addressing God in the book. And God let him complain. God let him gripe. Till we get over to verse, the chapter 38. And in 38 and 39, we find that God sets Job straight. 77 times he, he asked Job, basically, who are you? He, he asked him 77 questions. In 38 and 4, it begins with, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, Job, who are you to question the authority of God? Who are you to question the one who set the, the stars in the sky, who separated the sea from the land, who separated darkness from light? Who are you, Job, to question the one who formed you out of the dust of the ground? How can the clay tell the potter to fix me this way or that way? When God formed us in his image and likeness. He gets real with Job. And in chapter 42, what we find is Job repents. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I cannot know. Job said, I'm sorry, God. You can do whatever you want to do. All I know is you're faithful (laughs) and you have all power to do what you choose to do. Yes, when we're faced with attacks, we want to try to self-discipline ourselves. Man, when I'm feel, I I tell you, for years I felt like, well, I can, I, I got enough of willpower and enough of determination. I won't keep doing this and I just kept doing it. And I'm found there's nothing on earth there is nothing worldly there is no power within me in this flesh that has the strength to fight these spiritual battles so I must rely on the Holy Spirit of God we want to attack with weapons formed by man, but they won't aid us. We need weapons to fight our spiritual enemy, weapons that will cast down arguments or imaginations, depending on what your translation says. In other words, we need weapons that, that, uh, 
that will help us with those uncontrolled, those immoral, those lustful thoughts. We need weapons that will cast down everything that exalts itself uh, against the knowledge of God. In other words, we need weapons that will help us against false teaching, against pride, against arrogance, against self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. We need weapons that helps us to bring every thought into captivity in the obedience of God. In other words, we need weapons that will help us to control our thoughts and bring our bodies into subjection rather than trying to do it ourselves. The weapon we need is the armor of God. We need our waist girded with the belt of truth. We need, our, we need the breastplate of righteousness covering our hearts. We need our feet prepared with the gospel of peace. We need the shield of faith. We need the helmet of salvation. And my, listen folks, we need the helmet of salvation because without it, our thoughts will run us crazy. How many of you, you don't have to stick your hands up because I know the answer. Find yourself just talking to yourself. Maybe not out loud, but in your mind. Scenarios that because of something that's about to take place. You, you play out all of these scenarios in your mind. And you begin to dread whatever it is that's coming up. Oh man, my family's coming over for Christmas dinner and... And I get so tired of that sister of mine. Or I get so tired of that brother of mine. I, I get so tired of their aggravating youngins trying to tell me what to do. Or, or here I, I got to go face this employer. And I know I've not done anything wrong. And, and they're going to want to fire me. And, and I, oh, I, oh, I've got to go to church today. And I've got to put up with that one who thinks they're going to take care of everything that there is in the church. They want to take over. They want to take over every department and every program and everything that's going on. And you know what? We get there and... Things are no, nothing like what we dreaded. Yeah, man, Ma, that sister was on her best behavior. That brother didn't say anything out of line. Those, you come to the choir practice and nobody is, is fussing and fighting. You go to some other department meeting and everybody's getting along fine that day. It's, it's because we allow things to control our minds instead of having the helmet of salvation on and allowing God to control our minds. We do have an enemy that we do have to fight. But we don't fight in our own strength. Nor the strength of the weapons of this world. If we try to stand against Satan on our own, we're going to fall. He's a spirit and our warfare is spiritual. And our only victory will come through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we... Guard against our minds. Fill our minds with the word of God. How do I keep from lusting? Just keep your eyes on God's word. What will happen is you'll remember his word. He'll present it to you right in the midst of you looking at that person that you shouldn't have looked. Oh, that guy, Lord, he wears that suit so well. I know he belongs to her, but he could have me. Or that woman, Lord, that skirt just fits her so tight. And I know she belongs to him. But if she just would have met me first, you know, we, when those thoughts begin, we need to go ahead and get in God's word. When we think that, well, I'm better than he is, or I'm better than she is, we need to get in God's word. When we think that I've got control of this situation, we can get in God's word and find out that we have no control. That we need to rely on the Holy Spirit of God. 
And he will fight these battles for us. And last, I want us to see, and quickly we'll get out of your way. We want to remember not to lose focus of the goal here. Paul states that he is ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There in verse 6, we see that. And and what he's instructing is that though we may respond properly to false accusations. And though the reality is that we're in a spiritual fight. But if we're led by the Holy Spirit, we must deal with sin. We must deal with sin in the church. But only after every opportunity for repentance has been exhausted. And as born again believers, it's not our place to look for opportunities to correct others. We should provide opportunities for others to repent and turn from their wicked ways. We're dealing with people's eternity here. We're dealing with life and death. And the one thing that we don't want to be is a church or a body of believers who are turning people away. Instead, we want to be a loving group of people who are, who are correcting in meekness and gentleness, moving people to repentance and restoration. Well, when we take pleasure in people and running people from the church, if someone leaves our fellowship over sin... We should be broken over it. And we need to know that we've given every opportunity for them to repent and be restored. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 that if our brother or sister in the faith sins against us, then we go speak to them. And if they refuse to repent, then we take one or two witnesses with us. And if they refuse to repent, then we bring them to the church. And if they still refuse to repent, then we deal with them. Or we have no dealings with them. In Matthew, they say it says that we deal with them as a heathen. In other words, we just have no dealings with them. We treat them as if they are lost. That's what it's saying. It's not saying we kick them out. It's saying we treat them as they're lost and in need of a savior. We treat them with gentleness and meekness. We don't pacify and we don't say that what they're doing is right when we know it's wrong. We correct them in love. And when they don't receive it, then we do. We, like Brother Roger just said, we pray for them. We treat them as if they're lost and on their way to hell. Jesus is telling us to give them every opportunity to be restored. Besides, isn't that what he did for us? While we were sinners, wanting nothing to do with him, he left the splendor of heaven. And he came down to this sin-cursed world. He lived a sinless life. And for it, he was falsely accused. He was illegally tried. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And he hung between heaven and earth. And when it had been completed the sacrifice for all mankind when it had been completed the offering to God was fully offered he commended his spirit into God's hands 
They buried him in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he arose having victory over death, hell, and the grave. He exhausted every avenue to bring us into a right relationship with God. And as long as there's breath in our bodies, we have an opportunity to repent of our sins and be restored in the fellowship with God. As a church family, let's renew our commitment to properly respond to false accusations. And we do this by exercising meekness and gentleness. Let's commit to recognizing that we are in a spiritual warfare and that we're going to use spiritual weapons, not flesh and blood. Let's not lose focus and we continue to extend the same courtesy that was extended to us. Let's exhaust every avenue for those who bring accusation against us to repent and be restored. I believe that's how we need to enter into this new year with a renewed commitment in walking in the spirit. For you, while every head's bowed, every eye's closed, for you who are here today, Lost and out of fellowship with God. Jesus exhausted every avenue to bring you into a right relationship with God. So the question that's laid upon you today is will you today begin this new year by repenting of your sins? And become restored into a right relationship. And experience the joy of being in fellowship with God. You can. You can today receive Jesus as your Savior. Do you believe? That he died for your sins. And that on the third day he arose from the grave. Conquering death, hell and the grave. That right now he's standing at the right hand of the father. Awaiting instructions to return. And receive us unto himself. If you believe this. And you're willing to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Today, he will forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he'll welcome you. He will receive your repentance and he will restore you. As he brings you into fellowship with his father. Would you today? Brother Ronald begins this song of invitation. Would you today?